All right, we're in Acts 18. So last week and the, well, the previous two weeks, we were in Athens as Paul preaches the gospel there. Today, uh, we're in Corinth. So Acts 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. By the way, uh, there's a Roman historian who talks about this incident where Claudius, the emperor, kind of sends all the Jews out. And he says that it was because of the instigation of Crestus, which some people think is a misspelling or a misunderstanding of the word Christus. In other words, that the, there was this kind of instigation, this, this division in, in Rome because of the name of Jesus that caused Claudius to say, okay, you guys are all out. In any case, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matters yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. And then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatever. What a guy. All right, let's talk about Corinth first. This is an interesting one. I, I love looking at these cities and what characterized them. Corinth was about 60 kilometers west of Athens, so pretty close, kind of a rival of Athens throughout antiquity. Corinth was built on a narrow isthmus that connected two major parts of, of Greece, or Achaia, as that, it was then called. You can kind of see that there. So it actually had a, a, a port on both sides, and it was a very economically prosperous city. It was also a very religious city, uh, especially to, uh, they, they, there was this devotion to the goddess Aphrodite, temple built to her. Uh, she was the goddess of love. You might recognize her name in the English word aphrodisiac. So according to that, or, or in line with that, the Corinthians uh, were known in the ancient world, which was hardly a, a sexually conservative culture. The Corinthians were known for being especially sexually promiscuous. In fact, so much so that the name of the city became a verb, Corinthiazo, which meant sexual promiscuity. So there was a sin that this city was so famous for 
that it became a verb for that sin. That's next level right there. Now, Corinth was also a very prideful city, gave the Romans a lot of troubles. And so about 200 years before Paul got there, the Romans had actually torn the city down. They had destroyed it. They were like, we're done with this place. But it was such a promising location that they rebuilt it 100 years later. It's like, it's, they're going to kill us, but it's worth it. You know, it's, we just, we've got to do this. We've got to have this city here. And, and maybe most relevant for what we're going to talk about today because Corinth was, it was close to Athens, a close uh, connection with Greek philosophy, and because it was this cosmopolitan port city, uh, Corinth would get a lot of visitors, a lot of speakers and philosophers and others who would come through this city. And so Corinth was a very image-conscious, status-conscious kind of place. If these speakers came in and, and they were able to draw large crowds and, and get people to follow them and kind of be persuaded by them, that gave them more status. So this is a lot of what's going on in, in Corinth. And when Paul gets there, there's a couple of unique things that happen in his ministry at first. First, he, he meets Priscilla and Aquila. This is a couple that's going to feature in the New Testament a few different times. And we find out here that they were co-workers of Paul, not just in the gospel, but actually in the trade that they worked. They, they were tent makers, and so they're, they're working together. And this is what Paul is doing. He's, he's working to support himself, and then he is, uh, he's preaching and teaching when he's able to. But when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, if you, if you looked at the map, that would be like Philippi and Thessalonica. When, when they arrive from those churches, they've got some financial support, and they give it to, uh, to Paul, and now Paul can devote himself fully to the work of preaching and teaching. Now, this actually comes up in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, where, where it turns out that the Corinthians were embarrassed by this. Because in Greek culture, you didn't, if you, if you, were, a, if you were a well-known speaker, you didn't work with your hands. You didn't do blue-collar work. That was seen as being below you. And so for the Corinthians to go, here's our teacher, here's the guy who we're kind of following, you know, the guy who's kind of started this whole, this whole church thing that we've got going on in Corinth, and, and here he is working with his hands, making tents. It was profoundly embarrassing. It's like when I was a kid, and all the other kids would have name brand snacks, like Dunkaroos and Fruit Roll-Up, and I would have all these President's Choice no-name things. You know, it's so embarrassing, right? Because you're like status conscious kid, image conscious kid. And you're like, oh, I don't have what they have. I think that's kind of what the Corinthians thought about Paul. Like, oh, we don't have what everybody else has. This kind of flowery, rhetorically skilled kind of guy. Now, there are a couple of things, though, that are common from what we see in Corinth and what we've seen elsewhere in Acts. When Paul comes, he goes to the synagogue He's preaching about how Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus is the, the Savior, the Lord. Some people believe. We read that. Uh, TTS Justice, a God-fearing Gentile, he believes. A lot of people believe and are baptized. But, um, but there's also the, the counter response. A lot of Paul's fellow Jews are not fans of what he says. Uh, and so they, they're opposed to him. They, they abuse him. That, the word there is actually blaspheme. So probably they're speaking derogatorily about Jesus, who Paul is preaching. And then the situation escalates to a point that they actually drag Paul in front of the, 
the governing authorities, this happens over and over again to Paul, they drag him in front, they accuse him of being a troublemaker. The ones who form a mob are accusing him of being a troublemaker. A uh, little bit of irony there. Now let's, let's stay there at the end of this passage and talk about Gallio, talk about this interaction. So Gallio was actually from a very famous family in ancient Rome. His brother was a guy named Seneca. Seneca was one of the more well-known, beloved philosophers in ancient Rome. Some of you students might remember that. The rest of you, not a chance do you know who Seneca is, right? But some of you students might know. Seneca was, uh, was a philosopher. Tertullian, an early Christian leader, actually called him our Seneca because some of his ideas and thoughts came really close to Christian faith. And this is what Seneca said about his brother Gallio. He said, no mortal is so pleasant to any one person as Gallio is to everybody. What a nice thing for a brother to say, hey? Now, I think Sosthenes would probably disagree with this statement. You know, Sosthenes, the guy who gets beaten to a pulp and Gallio doesn't really care very much about it, probably wouldn't agree with Seneca about this. But Gallio's got a really good reputation. Uh, we know as well from history that he was only in Corinth for one year, from 51 AD until 52 AD, uh, which means that we kind of have a pretty solid date for when Paul was in Corinth. We're talking about 20 years or so after the crucifixion and resurrection of, of Jesus. That's when Paul is in Corinth. Uh, so Gallio's here, and this group of Jews haul Paul in front of him, and they accuse Paul of kind of leading people to worship God in a lawless way. This is the kind of thing that happens again and again. And Gallio sees right through it. He says, this is not, this is not something that I'm going to judge. It's not something Rome is going to get involved in. And here's why. Judaism was already an established and legal and recognized religion in the Roman Empire. So, you know, the Jews could worship God. They could, they could have their synagogues. The Romans were okay with that. And in Gallio's eyes, this whole Jesus thing that's happening is just an argument within Judaism. It's a family matter. This isn't something brand new in Gallio's eyes that Rome needs to decide on. This has already been settled way back when, the, when, when Rome kind of recognized, officially recognized Judaism. So he goes, you guys figure it out. It's not up to us. And this is why this is important. In other cities, there were uh, these lesser authorities known as magistrates. And they would make certain decisions. They said, you know, Paul, you have to leave the city. They, they, there was some local persecution that would take place. But those decisions only held water in those cities, in those places. Whereas Gallio is a proconsul. He, he's, a, he's a governor. That's a way Way higher authority. And whatever decision he makes here about this whole Jesus movement is going to make an impact on how any other governor or even the emperor decides about the church, about, about Christian faith. And so if Gallio cracked down on it here, that would make things really difficult for the church, not just in Corinth, but everywhere. Whereas instead, he goes hands off, and this means that the church ends up having about 10 more years 
of the Romans not really inter intervening a whole lot, but, but there being this freedom to actually grow. About 10 years later, you get Nero. Nero is an absolute tyrant of an emperor. And then things get a lot more difficult. But Gallio makes this decision. It seems to kind of pave the way for the church to have about 10 years of, of peace, relatively speaking. So all of that's taking place in the background. I want to go to the middle section of this. Because this is what really hit me this past week. And then just, like, it, it really, it really struck me pretty deeply what happens here in the middle. Because I, I'm convinced that when Paul comes to Corinth, that he is at an absolute breaking point. And this shouldn't really surprise us, considering everything that Paul had gone through, everything he had experienced. Paul is, is going from place to place, being rejected. That's going to wear on you. When you are opposed in everything you do, and everywhere you go, that's going to take a toll on your spirit over and over and over again for doors to be closed. I, I know we kind of think that Paul was immune to this. He's, he's the guy who's in prison in Philippi and he's singing songs. He's, he's the guy who, who says, I, I consider that our present troubles aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. He, he's the guy who gets kicked out of one city, gets stoned nearly to death in the next and still goes to the next city and preaches boldly in the synagogue, right? He just seems like he's this like bulletproof like superhero kind of guy, right? Who just isn't shaken by anything, just goes from one place to the next. But he was human. Do you know that? Paul was human. He's not Jesus, right? Jesus is human, but he was also God. Paul wasn't. He's just, he's just a guy, powerful in word and deed, anointed by the Spirit, but, but just a man. He was vulnerable to weariness, even to despair. And, and we, we kind of forget this about the great men and women of history, don't we? We put them on a pedestal and we forget that they were vulnerable, that they are vulnerable. Um, Carolyn and I just finished watching The Last Dance. I, it's not my first time, don't worry. I've watched this before. But it's a, a, it's a documentary, 10-part documentary about the 90 Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. I would consider this one of my greatest marital achievements, getting Carolyn to watch this with me, a 10-part sports documentary. And she liked it! She really did. At least that's what she tells me. Uh, so we're watching this. Michael Jordan, as you all know, probably was, you know, the, one of the greatest athletes in, in the world. Already in the early 90s, being proclaimed as the greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, immensely rich and famous. He's got, you know, billboards all over the world just covered with his, with his likeness. I mean, he was a real, he was kind of the alpha alpha. Um, people would, would worship him, and unfortunately, that's not really a figure of speech. I mean, it was, it was kind of crazy, the, the pedestal that he was put on. And the Bulls are winning championships in the early 90s. But towards the end of that run, uh, there, there start coming all these accusations that, that Michael Jordan was like a Nero-level tyrant of a teammate, that he had a gambling issue. All of a sudden, the sparkly clean image, like, like Mike, if I could be like Mike, all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe we don't want to be like Mike. You know, and so this, this thing starts crumbling to pieces, and, and he's facing accusations constantly. And, uh, and even as his, his team is winning championships, this tiredness is growing. And, and then in the summer of 93, his father is, is actually murdered. 
And a, a few weeks after that, he shocks the world and says, I'm done, I'm out. You know, I'm, I'm retiring from the game of basketball at the height of his athletic prowess, at the height of his success, he just walks away from it all. Because it turns out that behind all of that success, all of that triumph was a very tired, weary, broken man. Michael Jordan was and is no saint. That's just a, a contemporary example and gives me an excuse to talk about basketball. But, but we see this with the saints in the scriptures as well. I think about a guy like Moses. Moses saw things that you and I could only dream of seeing. He saw God set the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt. He saw the plagues and the way Israel was protected from those. He saw the Red Sea split in half. He saw the waters sweep over Egypt's armies. He saw God provide for the Israelites in the wilderness again and again in miraculous ways. And yet he also grew so tired of the whining and the complaining and the divisiveness of the Israelites. He would say things like this in Numbers. He, said, why? he says this to God, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? I can't carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. God, if you really love me, you'll take my life right now. That's, he, this guy was a leader of leaders, saw amazing things, triumph and victory, and yet was just at this point of saying, I can't do it anymore, Lord. Think about David, the greatest king in Israel's history, a man who slayed giants, extended the boundaries of Israel, established Jerusalem as the capital of his kingdom. This was a guy who God promised you'll always have a descendant on the throne. We had this favor from the Lord. This, this was a guy who girls in the streets sang songs about his victories and triumphs. And yet there were so many people who were coming after him, coming after his life, coming after the throne. You read things like this in, in Psalm 69. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The flood engulfs me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. I don't know about you, but when I look at pictures of David, you know, that have no historical basis at all, but he seems to have a full head of hair. So that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people who hate him without reason. And think about Elijah, another prophet, just anointed by the Spirit. Maybe the climax of, of Elijah's ministry was uh, this showdown with the prophets of Baal, this false god Baal on top of Mount Carmel, uh, where, where they both set up an altar. The prophets of Baal, there are hundreds of them, they're cutting themselves, crying out, shouting all day, trying to get Baal to set the altar on fire. Nothing happens. Elijah drenches the altar with water repeatedly, prays once, fire falls from heaven. The altar is consumed and, and the people's hearts, you know, Elijah was one of the only remaining faithful worshipers of God. But the people's hearts now are turned to the Lord. Again, this incredible thing that's taken place. 
but the queen of Israel, who was a big backer of the whole Baal cult, says, I'm coming for you, Elijah. I'm going to take your life. Elijah flees to the wilderness and prays, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. This is the kind of thing that happens to all of these people. And I think Paul fits in to that pattern. That all of the success, all of these churches planted, all of these people coming to faith, all of these people being baptized, you would think that he'd be on top of the world, but all that rejection, all that opposition, all that hardship, I think finally catches up to him here in Corinth. I think this is where it starts to surface in the form of despair. Now, why do I think that? A few reasons. I'll give you three reasons why I think that. Number one is the, because of the things that Paul himself says to the Corinthians in his letters to them. So in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I came to you, to the Corinthians, in weakness, with great fear and trembling. As far as I know, he doesn't say that to any other church He says it to the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul is naming how the Corinthians think about him. He says that they think his letters, Paul's letters, are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Now you think about Corinth again. Remember what we said about Corinth. This is an image-conscious, status-conscious city. It's a city that has had a ton of these very rhetorically skilled, flowery speakers come through. Now here's the thing about these, these orders that would come through, these Greek orders. They weren't really big on substance, They didn't even really care if what they said was true. The point was to get you to to believe them. You know, it was more about the, the flourish, more about the style than the truth. Now think about Paul, who Paul was. See, when when Paul goes to Athens, he's not that intimidated. Because I think Athens was a lot more interested in the truth, in the content. And Paul is confident in the content of the gospel. But Corinth, Corinth cares a lot about the appearance. And I don't know if you remember this, but a few months ago, I I quoted this uh, second century Christian writing that records uh, what, what supposedly is an eyewitness account of Paul coming to Iconium. It says that Paul appeared a man small in size with meeting eyebrows, in other words, a unibrow, with a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace. Paul was not a pleasant-looking guy. You know, eagle-nosed, short-squat guy. He certainly had more people hating him for no reason than he had hairs on his head, right? Like, that was definitely happening for Paul. Not a pleasant-looking guy. Not, 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 not trying to do the whole Greek, you know, fancy-speaking kind of thing. And so when he comes to Corinth, he, he knows that he doesn't measure up to their expectations. That they have a certain image in their mind of what a guy like Paul is supposed to be like, and he's not that. And I think Paul knows that. I, I, I think he feels that, he, he, that weighs on him. Like, imagine... Imagine dating somebody 
after they had broken up with some, like just being a normal person like you and me, right? And dating somebody who had just recently broken up with someone like ridiculously rich and famous and, and good looking. And they always compare you unfavorably to their ex. What would that do to you? Right? Because that's basically what's happening for Paul. The Corinthians are always kind of saying, you don't measure up. You're not like those other guys. We're embarrassed by you. I don't care who you are. That's going to make an impact on you. So based on what Paul himself says, I think Corinth, I think in Corinth, he's experiencing insecurity and fear in a way that he hasn't before. Second reason I think that this is kind of a breaking point for Paul is because of his response to the rejection. So he's in the synagogue, as always. Many of the Jews say, no, we don't like this. We don't believe this. But here, Paul shakes out his garments as a kind of way of saying, I'm done. I'm done with you. And, and he's, he's okay to do this. It's not wrong for Paul to do this because he has faithfully explained the gospel. He has said to them, this is who Jesus is. He's given them the message. Jesus has come to create a new covenant between you and God. Jesus is, is God in the flesh, the fulfillment of the scriptures. And, and they've said, no, he is free to move on. There's, a, there's an Old Testament prophet named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is called by God to be a watchman. And God says, if you're the watchman of a city, you know, you're on the city wall and you're looking out and you see danger coming, you see an army approaching. If you don't tell the people of the city that danger is coming and they all get slaughtered, guess who's at fault? The watchman. You had a job, you didn't do it. Their blood is on your head. But if you see danger coming and you do tell the people in the city, this is what's happening, watch out, get ready, and they don't listen to you, then who's at fault? It's the people in the city. Their blood is on their heads. And so Paul is essentially saying, I'm a watchman. I've done my job. I've done my duty. And so your blood is now on your heads. So he's okay to do that. But, but he doesn't really do this in other cities. He did this one other time in Pisidian Antioch, the first city, kind of on their, uh, one of the first cities on their trip. But he doesn't really do this in, in other cities. And then there's this declaration, right? He goes, that's it. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. But then he sets up shop, like literally next door to the synagogue, right? It's like, I'm done with you. I'm never talking to you again. But if you want to talk, I'm right here. I'm like, I'm like right beside you, just in case, you know? Like he's not putting a lot of distance between himself and, and his fellow Jews. And, and then when he goes to Ephesus, the next city he goes to, you know where the first place he goes to is? Goes back to the synagogue. So I don't think this is like some brand new strategy on his part. I, I think this is exasperation. I, I, think, I, think it's just, I think it's wearing on him. And then the third reason I think that this is a breaking point for Paul is because of the vision that he receives from Jesus. What does Jesus tell him? He tells him, do not be afraid. Don't be silent. Keep on speaking. And actually, another translation, the NASB, says, do not fear any longer. And I think that's getting at the truth of things. I mean, usually in the scriptures, when people are told not to fear, it's because they are fearing. It's because they, at least there's the potential, very much the potential that they're going to be afraid. I mean, Jesus gives Paul 
this one instruction, it's probably relevant to what he's going through. If Paul's flying high and super courageous and Jesus goes, hey, don't fear Paul. He's like, yeah, I know, I'm not doing that. Right, but he is. He, he is, he is fearing. And that's why, that's why Jesus kind of says to him, Paul, you can't, you can't stop speaking. I know you want to. I know, I know you're afraid of what's going to happen if you speak again, especially in a place like this, but you can't let fear get the upper hand. You, you, you've got to keep going. Have you been there before? Have you been in that place of, of, of just, like you've, you've maybe kept up appearances and nobody would know this, right? Because, because you've, you've tried to convince everybody that you've got it all together. I think this is a North Van thing. Maybe just a Vancouver thing. I, I think there's this tendency to kind of keep up appearances. You don't want to let people know that you're broken. But you know, you know that there's stuff brewing inside of you. That there's fear and there's insecurity and there's anxiety. I mean, my goodness is there anxiety in our culture. But people try to cover it up. They try to paper it over. The truth is you're human. You're not Superman or Supergirl or anything like that. You're not invulnerable. You're not immune to this. And this is what hit me this week because I'm in this place all the time as a pastor. And, and I, I sometimes think, no, 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 I'm supposed to, you know, I'm supposed to rise above it. I'm supp- I, need to, I need to be Superman. But I'm not. And God doesn't expect us to be. Instead, he expects us to come to him in our weakness. He expects us to rely on him. And his promise is that he will renew us. That's what he does. That's what he does. That's what he does for Paul. Let's look at what he did, what he did this vision. Let's look at this a little bit more, this, this renewal. It starts with this command. Don't fear. Don't stop speaking. Don't, or, or keep speaking. Don't, don't be silent. You've maybe heard this before. Do not fear is the most commonly repeated instruction in the Bible. This is the most frequent command we get. doesn't mean that it's the most important. Uh, Jesus says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Those are the most important. But it's the most frequently uh, cited command. Do not be afraid. And I think that's because it's what we as humans need to hear over and over and over again. We are fearing creatures, aren't we? Like, unlike other animals, it's not just what's happening in the present. We're also very aware of the future. We're anxious about the future. We're very cognizant of the past. We're worried about that. We're fearful about that. We, we, we are driven by fear. I looked up the American Fear Index. So I don't know, Canadians don't. You know, they're not afraid of anything. Well, maybe, maybe being trampled by moose, right? That would maybe show up high on the, I don't know. Uh, but but Amer- the American Fear Index, uh, 65% of Americans fear uh, a loved one, either falling ill or dying. Uh, 60% fear a mass shooting. 54% fear not having enough money for retirement. 52% fear the government becoming corrupt. The majority of Americans fear those things. And that covers quite a few different realms of life. They're anxious about these things. High up on the list as well is like fascism and snakes and being alone. And plastic waste buildup is like a, a highly ranked fear. 10% of Americans are seriously afraid of being abducted by aliens. It's the number one, number 41 ranked fear. You'd think like people have enough to worry about with those first 40, but like 
being abducted by aliens, 10%. It's crazy. And then there was a, there was a bit of an update uh, last year. And of course, now you've got nuclear warfare, world war. That shows up high on the list because of what's happened in Ukraine. We're, just, we're full of fear, right? We fear rejection. We fear being, uh, being uh, exposed as an imposter. We fear failure. As Christians, we fear all kinds of things. We fear what will happen if people know that we're a follower of Jesus. We fear that God will give up on us in all our many failings, just like so many other people have. We fear stepping out in faith and doing something we know God wants us to do, but we've never done it before. We, we are just, we, we fear and we fear and we fear. And so God says, don't. Don't fear. And this command that he gives to Paul and to us is accompanied by a few promises. This is how renewal comes for Paul. is not just the command, not just don't do that, but instead by promises that empower the obedience to that commandment. So here, here's the first one. Jesus says to Paul, do not fear because I am with you. His presence is the antidote to fear. And we see this over and over again in the scriptures as well. Uh, God tells Jacob in Genesis 26, he had a lot of reasons to be afraid. He says, do not be afraid for I am with you. God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and the Jews were, and they had experienced all kinds of traumatic things at this point. And God says, do not be afraid of the king of Babylon whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you. Speaks through Isaiah the prophet, says to the Jews, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. His presence dispels the fear. Because if you've got the Lord God Almighty, the maker of the heavens and the earth with you, you've got the ultimate trump card. You don't have to fear anything because he's over everything. It's like when my kids are afraid of like some wussy North Van spider. And they come running to me. They're like, daddy, 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 can you take care of this? I'm like, yes, I can. I am fully capable of this. I am not, like tarantulas, like in Central America where I once lived, a little bit of a different story. But wussy North Van spiders, I've got this every day, all day. You don't have to be afraid, kids. I'm going to take, take the spider out, right? And that's, that's God in, in everything. I've got this. Basically says to Paul, Paul, you, you've, got, you've got the strongest, most capable, highly trained dad of all time holding your hand as you walk through this dark alley. Do not fear, for I am with you. Second promise Jesus gives to Paul is that nobody is going to attack and harm him. Now this is not a general promise for everyone everywhere. The first one is, if you belong to Jesus, then he says to you, I am with you always to the end of the age. You can take that to the bank. But he doesn't promise all of us that nothing bad's gonna happen, that you're not gonna be harmed. In fact, that, that clearly doesn't happen with Paul in most places, right? I mean, Paul is stoned nearly to death. He, he is constantly experiencing harm in various ways. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, 
and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Don't be afraid. Really bad things are going to happen to you, okay? Like, how motivating is that? But I think what Jesus is saying there even is, is like, I'm, I'm in control of the situation. I'm putting limits around what, what can take place. Like, there's still this, Jesus is over this, so don't fear. And, and for Paul, Jesus says, I'm, I'm not going to let anyone harm you here. And that's what happens. Because really, for the first time, in Paul's travels, he's able to stay in a place for a longer period of time. He doesn't just have to flee right away. So he, he could, he's, he's in Corinth for a year and a half. And when he's finally dragged by a mob, as often happens, he's not the one who gets beaten. Sosthenes is. Paul seems to be protected by Gallio. And maybe it could be that Jesus gives you this promise as well through prayer or through a prophetic word from somebody. He says to you, hey, you're going to go through something but you're going to come through the fire un, unharmed, without a scratch, you know? And if, and if he does that, receive that. Dwell on that, you know? Let that, let that be your confidence. Third promise Jesus gives to Paul here in, in order that he can fulfill this command not to fear is that he says, I've got a lot of people in this city. And I think that's a reference. That's, that's an allusion to how fruitful the gospel is going to be in this place in Corinth, that despite, despite the way this city is so obsessed with status and strength and appearances, that there are going to be a significant number of people who trust in a crucified Savior. God is saying to Paul, Paul, I got something cooking here. You know, like Corinth, I forgot to say this, Corinth, one scholar says Corinth was the, the, the Las Vegas of its day. Another scholar says it was the Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and New York of its day all rolled into one. In some ways, this was a highly unlikely city to see a gospel explosion. And yet Jesus says to Paul, watch me. This is exactly what I'm going to do. Because oftentimes, when you're in a culture, in a city, where it seems like people are far off and getting farther and farther off, there will always be people who see the emptiness, the futility in all of that, and are hungry for something more. And that seems to have been the case in Corinth. Paul writes to the Corinthians, his first letter, he says, Think of what you were. When you were called, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So even in Corinth, you're going to have people who don't really fit in Corinth. And those are going to be the people especially who say, I like this Jesus thing. I want in on that. And I believe that's true in North Vancouver, in greater Vancouver, that even in a city that's one of the most secular, non-Christian cities in the Western Hemisphere, I think there are going to be people who see the emptiness in what's taking place and say, maybe there's something here. So these are the promises that Jesus gives to Paul, and it, it renews him. It empowers him to once again speak, to make Jesus known. And again, this is what God does. It's what he does for the saints. You think about Moses. And when Moses said that, where he was like, God, if you really love me, take my life. God instead said, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to show you my face. There's a whole whole moment where, where, where Moses was exposed to the glory of God in a way that very few people are. 
uh, David, every time he felt like his life was, was about to be taken from him, God would save him, would rescue him from his enemies. And we read that in the Psalms over and over again. David saying, God, you rescued me, you saved me. Elijah flees into the wilderness after this showdown on Mount Carmel, wants God to take his life as well, and an angel ministers to him, and then God speaks to him in a whisper and renews his calling. The church in Acts 4 experiences persecution for the first time, and they pray together, God, make us bold. Don't let us stop speaking. And God makes the place where they're meeting shake. He fills them with the Holy Spirit and enables them to speak boldly as in without fear. And I've seen it in my life so many times where the moment where I am most tired and weary and broken and despairing is the moment that God breathes on me by the Holy Spirit, renews my strength, gives me fresh perspective. I've just got to be open to it. And so I want to again return to you here today. Despite your appearances, there is that brokenness, the weariness that you are vulnerable to. You are not Superman. You are not Supergirl. Why not, instead of trying to hide that, trying to cover over that, just trying to get by in life, convincing everybody that you're okay, why not come to the Lord with that weakness? Why not bring it out into the open with him? Why not trust in his strength instead of your failing strength? There's, um, there's a passage that I actually have as, as a signature in my email. If you ever get an email from me, you'll see the signature at the bottom. And it makes sense that this verse is, is from Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians. It makes sense that it's, it's from a letter to this place where he, I think, felt so weak, where he was at a breaking point to people he felt pretty insecure with, I think. It makes sense that he would say this to them. He says, he says that he had been given this, this thorn in his flesh, some kind of impediment, some kind of barrier, some kind of weakness. And he says to them, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. His grace, the grace of Jesus, is sufficient for you. You don't have to hide. Come to him. He will renew you. He will renew your strength. He will fill you with his grace. He will give you his power. You just have to confess your weakness and come to him. Hey, let's worship. Let's pray. invite you in this in this moment here
to confess your weakness to the Lord. If you have been trying to cover it up, keeping up appearances, I invite you in this moment just to let that go. There's nothing there for you. There's no life for you in that. Life comes from him. It comes from becoming fully dependent on his power and his strength. God, we are constantly in need of renewal. I see it in my life, the pattern of just being renewed by God and then, then I and then I kind of think, okay, I got this. I can manage this. And I start relying on my own strength and things start falling apart again. And I go, okay, God, I need you again, actually. I really do. God, we constantly need renewal from you. It's a, da- it's a daily need. Or the moment we think that we're capable on our own, we are setting ourselves up for failure. So Lord, I pray that you would keep us in that place. That place of recognizing our, our, our brokenness, our weariness, our tiredness, whatever we want to call it. Just that need for you. And that you would just continually refresh us, revive us by your Holy Spirit. Just continue to do that, Lord. Just breathe into us day by day, moment by moment. Paul needed renewal from you. He needed to be told not to fear. We need that, Lord. So God, break, break the chains of, um, of appearance. Break the chain of, of self-sufficiency. Set us free from that, Lord, that we would live in, in, this, in this freedom of resting on your power and your strength. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.